0: Yale Podcast Network Welcome to Chewing the Fat, a podcast from the Yale Sustainable Food Program. We cover people and ideas making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Irwin Lee. Food can evoke powerful memories. At least, that's the idea podcast manager Alexa Stanger started with when writing this episode last fall. I thought the theme made sense. Like that iconic scene with Anton Ego from Pixar's Ratatouille, what better to transport us to our most personal stories than food? But like any story might, Alexa's explorations took her somewhere unexpected, and even more expansive. What else can we say about food and its imprint on our memories? Especially right now, with home cooking taking on new levels of importance during this pandemic. Find out in Alexa's incredible reflection that follows.
1: Thanksgiving turkey. Grandma's apple pie. Dad's Sunday roast. The memory of home-cooked meals shared with loved ones are sure to bring a smile to our faces. Spending months on end away at college, one of the things I associate most with home are these family meals and the memories they hold. It's hard to think of a time when food was not an excuse to bring people together, especially now when such gatherings are no longer possible. These memories become even more poignant. My family has started a message thread to exchange photos of the meals we are cooking now that we are all rustling up three meals a day. In London, my brothers try to recreate mum's chicken pot pie to varying levels of success. While in Austria, my grandmother makes her own Apfelstrudel. Slowly, I've seen an archive growing, a history of food in a time of physical distancing. I've wondered about what makes food so special in terms of its ability to preserve and pass on memories, and also how it can relate to story and broader traditions. In my own experience, cooking and sharing meals has been an important way to tie myself to my community and to explore my heritage. Yes, we all eat. Food is something we interact with every day. But why has food captured imaginations throughout history? What makes it able to tell stories and histories in ways that words or pictures might not be able to? We might usually think of recipes as one of the major ways we pass down traditions through food. But what happens when they don't exist? In the past, people had to understand the processes of growing, gathering, and cooking food. This knowledge was highly valued and usually held by the female members of a household. Today, this knowledge is something that we may have neglected. Too often in historical research, the voices of women are absent, as men tended to wield the pen while women cared for their families at home.
2: The question was, how do you write about ordinary lives of women in the past because there aren't many documents? And there are a few, right? So I love reading old letters. I love reading diaries. But then I really started thinking about what about all the women who didn't leave us letters and diaries? And what they often did leave us are food practices, right? And often maybe bread-baking practices, and there's a way that you can come to know those women by reproducing those bread baking practices and not always in recipes sometimes they're actually just in physical practices that are still available or that you can read about that was maria trumpler speaking a professor
1: of women gender and sexuality studies at yale university and herself an artisan bread and cheese maker for professor trumpler Food has provided a rare point of access to look more deeply into the everyday lives of women in the past. Performing the same bread and cheese making routines as these women did centuries ago, Professor Trumpler is not only able to glean more about the visceral, physical experiences of these women, but also to taste the food that they might have once tasted. Embodied practice, as it's sometimes referred to, can help us experience the past in the present. In learning about Professor Trumpler's research, I discovered how looking more deeply into food can uncover buried
2: self-narratives.
1: In other words, the past can present us with new memories to look to.
2: And I just, there's something really important about the embodied practice of recreating, of attempting to recreate, right, a bread from the past that I think is, is very moving. You know, in North America and Europe, in small farms, women traditionally were in charge of the the cows and the goats and the sheep and the, dairying and making cheese and buttermilk and then selling the leftovers um, that the family didn't need and using that money for their own expenses. So I really felt a connection with them as I was trying to figure out how to make different cheeses or had different actual experiences, like a cheese turned out very different than I thought or a cheese turned out way better than I thought or the milk was very strange one day, and it just made me feel a connection with those women which I really enjoyed, and I I feel the same with the bread making. While
1: sharing in these practices has been rewarding in Professor Trumpler's experience, she faced some resistance when she tried to bring this kind of teaching into the classroom. The study of food has not always been seen as intellectually rigorous.
2: At first, there was reluctance because a lot of the feminists who founded the program, sort of, you know, very warmly expressed 1970s feminists, and also women of my generation, often didn't learn to cook or didn't like cooking as a way of shoring up their ability to have a career that if they were never caught in the kitchen, they'd be more likely to have to be right in in law offices or in professor offices. And so there was some reluctance, like how can you combine feminism and food? But then I created a big lecture class called Women, Food, and Culture, which really grew in popularity uh, every year and brought a lot of students in. As some of my students would say, gosh, those are three of my favorite things. And now I think that I often have students in my class who feel freer, maybe their families or their own inner narratives said, oh, cooking is this thing I do in my spare time, like when I'm home for break, but it's not a really serious thing I do. And they couldn't even acknowledge the enjoyment factor of it. And then after taking my class, they're like, wow, actually, that knowledge I have is really important. Those skills I have are really important. That feeling of connection with my family, making these things, those are all really important.
1: The process of kneading, resting, and baking your own sourdough has a momentum to it, going through the exact steps that others before you might once have done. Beyond the skill involved in this practice, knowing that this bread will nourish yourself or your loved ones brings a deeper connectivity to the experience. It is a labor of love, both in the care afforded to the bread and to the ones that eat it. Through these practices, we feel a sense of belonging to a larger tradition, Rather than a burden or an afterthought, when we cook for ourselves, we feel a sense of value, maybe even enjoyment.
2: I think we underestimate the pleasure of the kind of work, particularly if it was with grain that you grew yourself and grain that you ground yourself and you had a sourdough starter that you nurtured and had come down through your grandmother. And you bake the bread in a wood-burning oven, right, as you were dyeing your wool and as you were making your cheese. And so for dinner, you put out your fresh hearth-baked bread and the freshly made cheese, right, on placemats that you had woven yourself and dyed with things from your garden, that there is a satisfaction to all of that and a pleasure and a skill set, right, because all of those things are not so easy to do. You really have to be always reacting that there's a real pleasure and sense of expertise and accomplishment in those experiences that we don't necessarily maybe have when we say, oh, they had to you know, put dinner on the table every day for their families and, oh, they did things that, that were so much work.
1: I was intrigued by this idea that more than obligation, women might experience a sense of pleasure and pride from baking their own bread, the pride of continuing a family practice so that their children could taste the same bread that they once enjoyed as a child. However, even if it was a labour of love, the time and physical exertion required to grow and cook their own food limited the other activities women might have wanted to pursue. We might risk viewing these practices in too romantic a light. I asked Professor Trumpler how we might think about these ideas as they relate to women entering the
2: workforce. The effort to get people to move into cash economies, um, which is still going on in certain parts of the world, that subsistence farming and subsistence living is a thing that you shouldn't have, right? That you want to move people into cash-based economies. I think that was often a terrible move for women, right? That I think that really just focusing on growing food that you can prepare yourself can create a really enjoyable life full of expertise and pride for women. If you push them into the cash economy because they can only buy food with cash and an awful lot of low-wage jobs are really mind-numbing, right, are incredibly repetitive, are incredibly thankless, are done under incredible pressure. You know, you're paid by the, the basket of strawberries that you, you pick or whatever. And then those women get home and they're too tired to cook, right? And so they use the cash that they've just earned so hard, you know, to buy food to bring home. And I think that was, I don't think anyone really thought through how that would affect women. I think there was just sort of this economic ideal that you need to get people into the cash economy, you need to have them earning wages, and subsistence farming is a backwards system we need to get rid of. And I think that's where I see a lot of economic harm done to women and what their actual daily lives were like and the kind of meaning or expertise or pleasure in those lives.
1: Even if elements of a more traditional subsistence lifestyle can yield a sense of pride and fulfillment, such a lifestyle is physically and emotionally demanding. For all the happy memories that the creating and eating of food might provide, what other complex narratives might be revealed through food? Can memories of food leave a bad taste in our mouths? Jamie Sunwoo, a Korean-American artist and Yale alumnus based in Brooklyn, has worked on a project that illustrates at first glance a more somber memory of food. Specially Processed American Me, also known as Spam, explores the unique role that Spam has played in the lives of Korean Americans.
3: Personally, I found that Spam was a really great way to connect with my grandmother and learn about my family history.
1: A processed canned meat, Spam was brought by the U.S. Army to South Korea during the Korean War. For its association with wartime rationing, it's usually seen as an unpopular and low-quality food in the United States. In South Korea, people ate spam in a war-torn economy because it was left in mass quantities. It was also one of the few foods that were shelf-stable and readily available. But today, this narrative has somewhat changed. Spam is very popular, used to make a variety of products and even luxury gifts. Jamie's project picks apart the role that food plays in shaping these stories, which can reveal such different perspectives. Through a variety of artistic media, specially processed American Me explores the social and cultural roots of spam, both in its history and in Jamie's own experience with the food. Telling the story of spam was a way of accessing deeper conversations about identity and generational history.
3: A lot of the theater piece is basically like a surreal autobiography that uses spam as just a starting point into these dialogues. So what happened was when I asked my grandmother about the first time she had spam, she actually ended up talking about the Korean War because the first time she had it was through an American soldier. So she ended up talking about how it was to you know try to survive this war with my grandfather and with all her children and what it was like to, you know, take refuge and how happy she was to have spam for the first time when she was essentially starving. And then that ended up opening up more conversations about our relatives, you know, because my my grandmother actually grew up in Kaesong, which is in North Korea. And so her siblings actually remained, some of her siblings remained in North Korea. And till this day, she doesn't really know what happened to them, right? So she started sharing all these stories about her her upbringing in North Korea. And these are stories that, you know, my own mother hadn't heard before. In addition
1: to uncovering stories about the difficulties of living through the Korean War, spam also came to symbolize a transition in Korea's history. To Americans, spam was a junk food that individuals were glad to leave behind. But to Koreans, spam was just another American import, like American music or Hollywood. This food that originated as a necessity reached into more people's lives than Jamie expected, beyond just the Asian American community and
3: beyond just the war experience. Spam and other foods as a portal into talking about all these different histories and as a way to reflect and as an entry point for further conversation is really my main goal. You know, I don't really try to control the dialogue and see where it goes. It's more like, You know, because it's such a loaded food and people will have an opinion about it (laughs) either way, it just opens up a lot of conversations. Um, I think starting with something mundane, whether it's spam or some other food or anything, really, starting with something mundane and then being able to use that to build on that conversation and move into things that maybe you'd normally be uncomfortable talking about. It just gives people permission to talk about these things. You know, not only did I realize it was something that I was obsessed with and thinking about, but it was something that the Asian community at large was very much thinking about. And it made me wonder, you know, why do Asian people eat spam, right? And particularly, it's popular amongst people with heritage from Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Guam, and Hawaii. Like, those are the big spam eaters. It's like, why? And of course— You know, looking back, it's actually related to that war history, World War II, the Korean War, and how the American soldiers brought it over because it was part of their K-rations, which is their field rations. And so I went into like a big rabbit hole doing that research. What
1: is this special funnel effect that food seems to have? No matter how unique, even strange a food might seem it can provide a gateway to a more universally accessible narrative. As food always plays at least a small part in our lives, anyone can understand food, even if framed in an artistic context.
3: Because it's something that your grandma can enjoy. It's very easy to appreciate, you know? And I think part of my personal art practice is to really connect with people that are not necessarily like cool art scene people. I really want a broader audience that can come in and and appreciate art through all sorts of ways. And so especially Process American Me, the spam project is very much about that. Like I'm trying to connect with just like normal. People call it community members, but really it's just people, you know, like I just want to connect with people.
1: My discussion with Jamie made me wonder whether when we make food into art, we begin to celebrate the image of the food more than the food itself. When we talk about the memories generated by spam, are we speaking about the memories of cooking with it or the branding and marketing associated with it, a form of storytelling in its own right? Is food still the source of these
3: connections? Processed food comes with branding. And with that branding and marketing, they're always trying to tell a story. So what is that story? And like when you're doing marketing for a brand, you want to know your consumer. And so it's very much about identity, anything that's being sold, right? So for me, with a product like Spam, I am digging into the brand, you know, because they tried to market it as this patriotic food after the war. And they even had these women called the Hormel Girls, and they were World War II women veterans that would tour the country and market Spam and other products through music. They had like a radio show, an orchestra. They had a national competing like drum and bugle corps. It was the only women's drum and bugle corps that had existed. I think even till now, I might be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure that's the case that they were the only ones. So really intense. But that was all about having that all American spirit about serving your country. And they'd really try to associate SPAN with that. And so even they appear as characters, actually, in my theater piece, through these, like, surreal beings that haunt my childhood memories as I'm eating different spam dishes. I do believe, like, you are what you eat, you know? So what stories do we want to consume through that?
0: We'll be right back. Hey, I'm your host, Erwin Lee. If you're enjoying this episode so far, please subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Your support empowers and inspires us to tell more stories and reach more people like you. In other words, you're helping us, be us. Thank you for listening. Now back to the show.
1: Speaking with Professor Trumpler and Jamie made me think more about how food tells personal and generational histories. These memories can expand into so many narratives and ideas, sometimes similar, sometimes divergent, and everything in between. But how might explicitly celebrating food traditions in the past shape how we live in the present? As I continued to think about food, memory, and family, I spoke with Rebecca Sullivan, a 2019 Yale World Fellow. As a sustainable living advocate and founder of the ethical living brand Warnu and the granny skills movement in Australia, Rebecca wants to better understand the way that her
4: grandparents lived. So basically the last 15 years, my whole life has been about food and sustainability and it wasn't until I lost my great-grandmother. Her name was Lily. Uh, When she was 100, I found out she was this award-winning baker in the 30s and my heart was broken because I found out you know, Obviously, I was heartbroken because she was gone, but I was also very heartbroken that I found out she was this award-winning baker and I worked in food and I'd never seen her cook. So that sparked this aha moment around creating this granny skills movement, which is the nature of my work today, which is all about living like our grandmothers. And our grandmothers, for me, are the most sustainable generation. They ate locally, they ate seasonally, and they didn't waste Anything, not food, not nothing. You know, my nan had five kids, three jobs, and she couldn't afford to waste things. So I think there's really something in that idea of taking a step back and living more like our grandparents.
1: In Rebecca's experience, living like our grandparents takes us away from living in a world surrounded by technology, a lifestyle that Rebecca celebrates as more authentic. But beyond the glow of authenticity, I was drawn to the Granny Skills movement's promises of preserving tradition beginning with the memory of our grandparents and the greater traditional knowledge that this memory might represent.
4: I don't know, we used to have such a great connection to our grandparents. They lived in the home, they were such a part of our life and I think our lives were richer for it and I think the further we distance ourselves from our elders' knowledge and skills and, and stories, our life becomes pretty dull. We don't want to spend heaps of time in the kitchen anymore. We've got other things that we want to do. I just think maybe we need to think for the sake of our mental health, for the sake of our health health, for the sake of the environment. If we did spend a little bit less time on, you know, social media, watching television, you spend half an hour of that cooking something from scratch or, you know, making your own cleaning products or, you know, making your own beauty products or just being connected to your community and being connected to outdoor, growing some food, you watch how your life will change.
1: Before, necessity might have demanded people save money and time in order to support large families. Rebecca's mission to incorporate the traditions of our grandparents into our lives today sees more benefits than just cost-cutting. We gain from learning about the diversity of their traditions and their resourcefulness. Can these traditions help us imagine a lifestyle of more possibilities in the
4: present? You know, preserving food was the norm, and it still is the norm in many cultures. This is what we forget. Yes, we live, you know, currently in the US where for the most part, you can just go to the store and it's, you know, pretty much cheaper for you to buy it. But, but what's in it? You know, consider what's in it. These traditions are so important. We lose tradition and we lose culture. We lose language. We lose so much. We lose story. We will just become a big monoculture. I mean, who wants to exist in a world with no culture and no traditions to share with each other and no amazing foods to share with each other? Because we've all just gone oh, I'll just exist in one big world that's exactly the same and I use the term monoculture from an agricultural perspective as well because you know we used to eat thousands of different types of foods especially our indigenous Australians and now apparently the common number is like 40 people eat 40 different things you know in their diet and that for me just is like odd you <laughs> know that just scare that scares me in its entirety My conversation with Rebecca showed me
1: that living in a way that respects the values our grandparents once held can be a way to bring memory into a more creative, modern future. Particularly under physical distancing measures today, we are faced with the need to live with less and be creative with what we have. What's more, many of our students are returning home, living under the same roof, having family meals almost every day. In an effort to preserve these family connections, to prevent the emergence of a monoculture, the dining table is a place to share these stories and to learn from one another, as Jamie has found through her artwork, Professor Trumpler in the classroom, or even Rebecca in her future plans.
4: We are currently a food brand, but we plan on being Australia's leading ethical lifestyle brand. We've been branching out into all different ways to share story of regeneration. Regenerating culture, community, tradition, health and soil is our is our mission statement. but you know i've been using the fallen bark from the trees in our forest to dye garments for an amazing brand and that gives me a platform to share botanical dyes with people but the reason we have so much fallen bark is because of climate change and the drought so i can tell that story you know we have a range of body products and nutraceutical products in the works and a bunch of lifestyle products in the works my partner's an incredible indigenous artist and we've got a pottery studio and an art studio so I think I've got to realise that I have this place in which I can create a space of learning and sharing and cultural awareness and we're going to be building a school and a cultural awareness centre and some eco-accommodation on our property and hopefully in the years to come I'll be doing less running around the rest of the world and, and more inviting people to my part of the world to share you know, our beautiful home with people and, and this school that I hope We'll take elements of all of the amazing places that I've taught and learned from, and bring it all in in one place. All of that holistic sort of elders' knowledge, and be able to share that with people.
1: We can learn so much in the kitchen preparing food together, because of the way that we often prepare food in groups with family or friends. Food is an integral part of community and also an important space for creativity. Because sharing food with others is explicitly a welcoming gesture, we can learn about other traditions from a space of commonality, lack of judgment, and comfort at these tables, a kind of learning that might not be possible in other contexts. Sometimes we can channel this learning into an altogether new, more collaborative form of producing knowledge. Professor Trumpler herself has explored this, turning the kitchen into a classroom. She opens to students the kind of valuable knowledge that they miss out on in a conventional classroom. Yale's Office of LGBTQ Resources, which Professor Trumpler directs and teaches in, is a space where students can gather and cook.
2: I've ended up with this amazing space here that has a kitchen and a table, so I'm able to have 22 students. We sit at tables of four that we call kitchen tables, and we ask the question, why don't we think about the knowledge that's created at kitchen tables as being as valuable as the ones that are created at, like, Germanic seminar tables, which is really what Yale's smaller classes are based on, these sort of German monasteries where there's a head monk, right, sharing his knowledge with the dutiful monks at the table, scribbling, <laughs> scribbling down what he says. And so we sit in kitchen tables, and we discuss things, and we almost always do embodied practice, i.e. baking and tasting, um, which are embodied practices. And so that's been really fun to see how students react to not just reading about something, but making it and tasting it as part of the experience, which I think is, I think it's also crazy a little bit that Yale is a place that we focus so much on our minds and sometimes we ignore our bodies.
1: While we're now physically distanced, I've noticed these types of dialogues around food and memory still occurring, sometimes in new ways. People are hosting virtual cooking meetups over Zoom or streaming quarantine cooking hacks on Instagram Live. Major media organisations like the New York Times have heralded all types of comfort food in their cooking supplements. So while large group gatherings are no longer possible and dinner tables might feel emptier, might we have figured out how digital life can bring in food and memory? Can these fora be new substitutes for these conversations? I'm not sure, but I believe in people's willingness to share, whether that be virtually or in
2: the kitchen side
1: by side.
2: One of the students in my class in the fall had a foreign exchange student from Algeria when she was in high school, who was a little taken aback that my students' family, everybody shared the cooking, but they were shared individually. So a certain night, it was one member of the family's time to cook. And that they would be in the kitchen following a recipe and they would and they would usually follow a recipe that was new and they would kind of try to outdo each other with like cool new recipes that no one had had before that they did a really nice job on. And then other people would help clean up, but they would be cooking alone. And this exchange student was like, just like, wow, this is so different. And when the student went to visit the exchange student's family in Algeria, it was like all the women, like six to eight women, all related in some way or another, were in the kitchen all cooking together and there were no recipes. mean, um, they pretty much cooked similar like kind of thing, but there would be variations depending on what vegetables were available or what seasoning people had. And that that, that was the cooking was always this communal thing, like family based thing. And the student was reflecting on that in a paper. I thought That was fascinating. And, you know, I think families really vary. I think you could find both models of families, um, even in this country. But I think that notion of finding a cool recipe and impressing family is not an uncommon one.
1: I'm a student, and when I was living on campus full-time, I often had little time and no regular kitchen to cook in. But for me, the moments I can steal away to cook with friends or family always bring to mind happy memories. I feel a sense of community and shared enjoyment. Cooking has always been fun and delicious, but after exploring these conversations, I realize there's much more to the story of food and memory. We cannot predict a singular way that food might affect our lives. Speaking with Professor Trumpler, Jamie, and Rebecca, food has led them to different modes of research, conversation, and living. But for all three, food began with storytelling and extended into something greater. While the tastes and practices of cooking will always form part of our sensory memory, these marks dig much deeper. Food is not just a link to memory but an expression of values, personalities, and stories. We actively use food to maintain those connections, whether they be to our grandparents, to our culture, or to women lost in history. We have given food the power to shape our lives.
0: Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. Special thanks to Jamie Sunwoo, Maria Trumpler, and Rebecca Sullivan for chatting with us for this episode. The Asian American Cultural Center at Yale and the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration supported Jamie's visit to campus. And Rebecca was part of the Maurice R. Greenberg World Fellows Program at the Jackson School for Global Affairs. Check out the episode notes for more details on all of these wonderful people and organizations. This episode was produced by Amy Zhang, Alexa Stanger, Lin Nguyen, Sasha Samina, Thomas Hagen, and myself, Erwin Lee. Recording support by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Jingles by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis Felice, With episode music by Sasha Samina. Program support by Jacqueline Mano, Jeremy Oldfield, and Mark Bomford. As always, we'll see you in two weeks with another episode. Stay safe out there.